Welcome to the Politics Guys, the place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined, as usual, by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, welcome to the third and final week of our takeover of the Politics Guys. You know, I, I, we think it's the third and final week, but I've just, we've just received word that uh, Michael has, uh, has a, a flat tire in the Pyrenees somewhere, and we don't know if we'll be able to make it out of there by next week. <laughs> that is true. I mean, and, I mean, it's still up in the air whether or not we let Jay out of the out of your basement. Um, there's all kinds of uh... <laughs> all kinds of contingencies, so I'm, I'm keeping next Friday clear, Trey. Uh, just in case, us. just in case, right? That's, that's yeah. a good plan. That's a good plan. <laughs> I mean, and who knows? The United States might not even uh, take uh, t- taking back into the U.S. You know, they'd be like, "Listen, you're trying, <laughs> you're, you're you're a defector, right?" I mean, and if you think about it, it was a good week to be a defector. I mean, first first it's to North Korea, and then it's my. <laughs> um, seriously, though, don't defect to North Korea. It's uh, <laughs> a bad plan. <laughs> Uh, not that we're going to take that particular story on today, uh, but we do have a bunch of good things to go on uh, this week. We're going to be talking about cool things uh, like uh, 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 the Israeli's president's speech to a joint session of Congress. We're going to talk about some grain deal changes. We're going to talk about the Illinois Supreme Court case on cash bail and a whole lot more. Uh, but that's what we're going to be taking on this week. And I, and I thought where we would start, because it, I, I think it was probably one of the bigger items, Ken, was Israeli president's. Uh, Isaac uh, Herzog's uh, uh, a joint session speech to Congress this past Wednesday. Uh, but it also, of course, was the drama leading up to it. And, and I think some of the really real divisions in the Democratic Party that have existed for some time, uh, and I get that, and it, and it really centered originally and earlier in the week um, when Congressional Progressive Caucus representative uh, Pramala uh, Jalapal. I always get her name right, uh, wrong. Ken, say, say that. Uh, J- Jayapal. I'm not exactly sure about her first name either, but Jayapal is correct for her last name. Okay, so I did. Okay, yeah. Okay, we're gonna Representative Jayapal <laughs> because I know that's what I have. <laughs> My apologies on that front. Um, I always want to get people's names right. Uh, uh, she called Israel quote a racist state end quote. Now. That came under a lot of kind of bipartisan fire, and she would end up walking back her comments. But it did end up leading to kind of a show vote on a measure to declare that Israel is, quote, not a racist or an apartheid state, end quote. Uh, Now, that, although did not get unanimity, as a matter of fact, nine Democrats still voted against it. Um, is a matter of, uh, including arguing that Israel, in fact, does support racism, murders, and apartheid uh, uh, in the statement. Now, there's a lot of history here, Ken, and I thought I would just give us a, a quick uh, thumbnail sketch for listeners. I think Israel is one of those things we recognize. We probably don't necessarily know it's modern history. So following World War II, uh, you know, the British re- withdrew from the area that we know as Palestine, uh, and the United Nations proposed partitioning the area 
uh, into an Arab and Jewish states. And that idea is what we oftentimes call the, uh, the Balfour Declaration that comes in 1917. Uh, this is during what you think of as being the British Mandate period. Now, the British, they weren't particularly interested in that. Now, that arrangement was rejected by Arabs who were upset, and understandably in, in many ways, by the large influx of Jews coming into the area before and after World War III. As a matter of fact, there's even a famous agreement with the Nazis in 1933 uh, to allow some Jewish people in. And likewise, you understand uh, the, the desire for Jewish people uh, to, to, to get away. Now, following World War II, the British uh, uh, withdrawal, um, but the British actually opposed either an Israeli or an Arab state, uh, and it dis uh, disapproved of immigration. Now, this is something I think this is really worth noting. There's this really wrong view of history, and in this telling of history, Hitler is kind of this outlier of anti-Semitism, uh, but really in truth, he's not, right? I mean, European anti-Semitism is long-standing. He just might be what you might call the most egregious of it uh, in, in many ways. But that is one of the reasons you have this kind of influx of individuals into the area we're going to eventually know as Israel. Now, after the death of FDR, Harry Truman appoints individuals to study the issue, and in 1946, Truman declared his support for a Jewish state. Now, this was consistent with the United Nations Partition Resolution, which was going to be, again, that two-state resolution, but that actually wouldn't uh, uh, come to be. As a matter of fact, we would end up having the fastest recognition of another country ever. Uh, when on the same day, President Truman would recognize Israel as a state. Now, this created Arab anger, uh, and this leads to the Arab-Israeli War of 1948. Now, we could spend a whole show just talking about, you know, what comes after that, the Oslo Accords in 93, uh, the ending of status with the election of Hamas in 2006. But that's, that's kind of the brief thumbnail of the sketch of Israel. Now, what makes this particularly weird, Ken, and I'm curious about your opinion on this, is, is that there is a constructed sense of Jewishness that is modern or sometimes considered to be Zionist uh, that says there has to be kind of a nationality that exists in the wake of uh, what we think of as being the Holocaust. And I think there's a lot of sympathy for that in the United States. Uh, but at the same time, there is a lot of anger at that from Arab quarters, which is also combined undoubtedly with a significant amount of Arab anti-Semitism, although that's not all of it, uh, all centered in one area where you've now had a lot of conflict. And I think you saw a lot of that coming up in Congress. So what do you take, take away from what was going on this past week about that with that kind of little bit of background? Or if I've missed anything you think that would be useful here? Yeah, one thing I'll add to the context that you gave, which I think is relevant um, to what happened this past week, is uh, so you, you talked about how um, German anti-Semitism was reflected in, in broader European anti-Semitism. And, and when uh, in the early years of Hitler, in the early years of Hitler, when he he would have allowed um, Jews to um, uh, emigrate, um, other European countries would not take very many of them. Um, and that caused a lot of problems. Um, one thing I would parallel that with, which you didn't talk about as much, is a fairly analogous situation with the Palestinians 
um, after the formation of the state of Israel. That um, so when 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 you have the original UN partition in '47, there's two states created. Um, there's Israel, and there's a state that was then called um, Transjordan, and uh, Transjordan is the country that today is still Jordan um, on, on, the, on the east bank of, of the Jordan River, and also um, the territory that today is the, the West Bank, which is the occupied Palestinian territory um, that's, that's, you know, where Israel has a military occupation. And all of that is, is Transjordan in the, in the UN mandate. And so the, the Palestinian people, the people that today call themselves Palestinians, they're, they're a minority ethnic group within Transjordan at the time of partition. And the, the majority ethnic group within Transjordan um, are the Hashemite Arabs and the Jordanian royal family are Hashemites. And they their views of the Palestinians are pretty similar to European views of the Jews. There's just a lot of you know anti-Palestinian sentiment um, among the Hashemite Arabs and among all the other Arabs. And and the Palestinians um, who were living under military occupation and still are, um, uh, you know, Israel, you know, did try to encourage emigration just the way um, Hitler had tried to initially encourage emigration of Jews. And uh, um, but but similarly, just like other European countries wouldn't take Jews, other Arab countries um, wouldn't wouldn't take Palestinians. And the the 1948 war. Um, you know, um, which all the Arab countries launch uh, against Israel doesn't change the borders very much, but it's the 1967 war, which I think you didn't mention that. Um, That's the one that changes the borders, the borders very yeah. significantly. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Arab countries attack again in 67. And this time Israel not only uh, repels them, but it moves uh, forward into um, Jordan, into Syria, and into Egypt, and takes um, large amounts of territory from both Jordan and Egypt, and smaller amounts of territory from Syria and, and Lebanon. And, uh, um, and then uh, later, there's a peace treaty with Egypt uh, during the Carter years, and the Sinai Peninsula, which was the um, Egyptian territory that Israel took, was mostly given back to Egypt, although a little bit of that, the, the Gaza Strip, uh, remains under Israeli military occupation. Um, with Lebanon, there's similar agreements. For a while, there's an occupation in an area called the Golan Heights, but that does get given back in a, in a peace deal with Lebanon. Um, but with Jordan, um, Jordan never wants back the West Bank. And so, you know, Israel, at a time when Israel would have bargained to give back the West Bank in exchange for peace, Jordan actually offers peace and doesn't want the West Bank back. And so they end up doing a, a peace deal with Jordan that, that traps um, the Palestinians inside Israeli military occupation. And that's been the that's been the situation ever since. So I, I actually think it's not unfair to call Israel an apartheid state now. I think it is an apartheid state. Um, there's that history that uh, um, may explain that. But you have a, a group of people who are Palestinians um, living in a territory that's under Israeli military occupation. They don't have their own country. They're not able to be able to rejoin Jordan because Jordan won't take them. Um, and they don't have anywhere near the kind of rights that um, people in Israel have. Now, it's not identical to a South African apartheid state because there's also Arabs and Muslims who live in, in Tel Aviv and Haifa and all the um, Israeli cities, and they have ordinary rights. So if, if, they, if, if you have Israeli Arabs who live in in the in the pre nineteen forty seven part of Israel, uh, they have generally all the same political rights Israelis have, although they're not required to serve in the army. But if um, if you have uh, people living in the West Bank, um, which is you know we're talking about maybe twenty five percent of all the territory of Israel here, 
um, then if they're Jews, they have rights, and if they're uh, Palestinians, they don't. And so I think that's that's fair to call it an apartheid state. In fact, I think one of the most hi hypocritical things about the U.S. House of Representatives um, denouncing the de denouncing the idea that Israel is an apartheid state is that the the U.S. until this week. Um, participated in propping up some of the apartheid rules. That only ended because of this appearance. But one of one of Israel's apartheid rules was that um, if, if foreign people want to come visit Israel, and that includes U.S. citizens, um, if U.S. citizens want to come visit Israel, um, their 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 race and ethnicity is taken account of. And it was actually impossible for a U.S. citizen um, of uh, Palestinian ethnicity to travel to um, Israel, it just wasn't legal, even if even though they were a U.S. citizen, um, until this week. And so, so that's a uh, um, you know that that I think I don't see how anyone could say that's not an apartheid state. Now, I, I mean, this is one where I have balance, but I, I I may push back a little bit here to say that I do think that there is, I understand and am sympathetic to the Israeli position of uh, Palestinians, given the multiplicity of wars they had to fight for their very existence. And that creates a situation in which you're going to have a level of hesitancy. And so I think it might be e it's easier for the two of us to say, well, of course, you need to have um, inclusivity for Palestinians. Uh, but that's not an easy thing from the point of view of individuals who have dealt with, I mean, more terrorist activities, uh, you know, bus bombings than really any other country has ever experienced. That's that's going to be, be reflective in your politics. Now, I, that doesn't necessarily make it uh, morally right, but it certainly, I think, explains why you're going to have some of those hesitancies. Yeah. Again, combined with the fact, as you rightfully noted, you've had multiple wars to wipe you off, I mean, to wipe you out of existence yeah. that come in the wake of a Holocaust that attempts to wipe you out of existence. Right. So I, again, yeah. I, I can't disagree with, with your our overarching point of saying, look, it's a different kind of apartheid, yet I can't help but be at least more supportive of it in a sense in the in the light of when you take those holistic in, yeah. into consideration. What I, do you I think agree. about I, that? Right. I, I agree entirely. I, I yeah, I wanted to add the extra context about the Palestinians. And it, I, I think Israel is between rocks and hard places and that, you know, they they um, they, they have more bona fide security threats um, from their neighbors than almost any country in the world. Um, you know, maybe Ukraine has worse, but uh, but Israel well, I, mean, I has, guess the difference uh, to me was imagine you know, if you're Ukraine and you're surrounded. <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah. 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 But it's, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I see why they um, have some of the policies that they have. And there have been times in their history where uh, there, there have been existential threats that have made them um, do things that you wouldn't want to, you know, we wouldn't condone under other circumstances, but become understandable. Um, but I think that uh, there's, there's, um, I, I don't think it's wrong, nonetheless, to say, well, um, if, if, if Israel's defining um, a group of people based on a combination of their ethnicity and their zip code and saying, you know, those people, you know, because they're because they're Palestinian ethnicity and because they live um, in, in territories that are considered occupied territories, um, there's a, a zillion things they can't do. And and even foreigners um, who just want to come visit visit Israel, you know, the, their ethnicity will be taken into account in terms of whether they're even allowed to or not. 
Um, I, 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 don't, I don't shy away from the label apartheid. I think I do shy away from the label racist. And I know both of those things were wrapped up in the Jay Paul statement and both of those yeah. things were wrapped up in the House resolution. Whereas I, I think it's, um, you know, because of the, um, because of the ongoing threat of terrorism and war, um, you know, some of these apartheid measures may not be motivated by racism, but I still think they are um, uh, apartheid measures, and I would call them that. By the way, I'd say the same about the United States with respect to the voting rights of people living in territories like Puerto Rico, right? Like we have a class of lesser citizens. Um, uh, if, if they live in Puerto Rico, uh, they, they can't vote, um, but they're U.S. citizens. And uh, now in, in their case, they can just move up to the um, 50 states and, and vote. Um, the, the Palestinian people are not even allowed to do that. They're not allowed to move into Israel if they want to. They have to stay in the occupied West Bank, whereas the reverse is, is the opposite. Israeli, Israeli Jews can move anywhere in the West Bank or in Israel. They can come or go as they please. But people of Palestinian ethnicity who live in the, in the West Bank can never even, you know, can never even come into Israel. Some of them can get permits to walk in during the day and go to work, but they, they have to walk home at night. They can't stay overnight. They can't relocate. They can't get the rights that the Israeli Arabs have. So, um, I, you know, I, I think I think change needs to happen. And I basically do support the efforts of um, uh, people like the, the the nine or 10 Congress members uh, who, who raised these issues. I, I support their efforts to raise the issues. I certainly support the right of the state of Israel to exist and to be free of terrorism and war. But I think there's ways to do that, particularly the two state solution that the Oslo Accords, which you mentioned, actually contemplated and which the subsequent Israeli governments um, you know, sabotaged. But there was this moment in time in, in, in 1993, where there was a path um, to a, a two-state solution um, where the Palestinians, you know, Jordan didn't want them back, but they could have had their own Palestinian state. And there were, there were a blueprint in, in place to get that done. And then it just never got done. Well, and let's be honest, that I'm not even sure that's a possibility today, in part because of the popularity uh, like when, when when Hamas won elections in 2006 which I had just kind of briefly mentioned I mean you effectively have a terrorist organization taking control and would take control of the of the state and so I, I hear and understand the desire for a two-state but I'm not sure you can pragmatically do it because you would instantaneously have effectively a a terrorist state living on your on your border I don't I don't know what you do about that yeah well I mean right it's, it's that complicates things compared to 1993 when that wasn't the case, but um, but it doesn't make it impossible. I mean, if if you think of a situation like um, you know right you know within five years after the end of World War II, um, you know Germany and Japan had been under Western military occupation, and and uh, you know the, the governments are reconstituted there now. Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan were much worse uh, terrorist aggressor states than the Palestinians have ever been. Um, and within five years, they're reconstituted, but under um, under you know still some foreign supervision and under very strict restrictions on their own ability to militarize, which actually Japan came to love, and they they never wanted to militarize again after that. Um, and uh, um, you know I think there's ways to do things like that. I mean, if we could re rehabilitate Germany and Japan in just five years. You know, you're talking about, you know, much more dangerous states than the Palestinians could ever be. I think the only problem in that analysis there is it doesn't take into account the kind of ethnic hatred that that festers there. Right. I, I don't think there what you know, Germans on their face did not have uh, a, a national or an ethnic hatred 
for British or American people, which I think might complicate. Well, they, had it for Sla- they, they had it for Slavic people who were on their other borders, and the J- Japanese certainly did have it for Chinese and now Korean that is, people. Now that is and, fair. Uh, That's true. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so I think you know they 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 work through it. So now let's let's bring this to the United States to kind of you know finish it up. You'd started to move in that way anyway. You you had said you were kind of supportive of uh, the Democrats who had, who had made this position. Obviously, it's a minority position in, in the Democratic Party, but it's an emergent position. And it's certainly a divisive position. Uh, what do you think this means? I think you know one of the things over the last few years I've noticed is we focused a lot of our time, uh, and I, not not wrongfully, but rightfully so, on the the emergent divisions inside the the Republican Party and its positions in the in the Trump and post Trump era, uh, and I think a lot what that has that has done though it's not as if the Democratic Party hasn't been undergoing its own shifts. It's just that those shifts have not gotten the same kinds of attention. And so one of the things that I was seeing this week in this story, Ken, was, you know, here's one of these moments when some of those changes, shifts and divisions, the Democratic Party are coming to the fore uh, 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 again. As things stabilize in terms of Republican Party, I mean, again, not where I necessarily would have wanted it, but as they come to stabilize it means that we'll again be talking about kind of these democratic divisions. And, and, and what do you think about that on this, on the, on the domestic front? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the um, democratic party uh, has a, a coalition that, um, you know, I think the logic of the whole coalition is kind of um, the anti-Trump coalition, but in terms of which domestic uh, policy issues um, they prioritize, there's or definitely a wide range of case. views. Yeah, even foreign. Now, on this foreign policy view, although although my own sympathies are with the nine or ten House members who were willing to use the word apartheid, I don't have any illusions that that's a serious schism within the party. I think the overwhelming weight of the party is on the other side of that issue. And you think of people like Chuck Schumer sort of setting the the, the mainstream Democratic policy on that. It's fairly reflexively pro-Israel. Um, and I'll say even to me, um, although I, I, you know, we're we're just talking about this from a kind of academic standpoint, and I, I think it is fair to use the word apartheid about Israel. Um, I don't know that even you know the name calling helps. Like even I would say it might have been better, um, you know, for for Jay Paul not to use that word in public, even as she tried to advance um, the, the the positions that that I agree with that she was advancing, because it's it always becomes inflammatory and leads to. Um, Ranker, and you don't you don't really want that within the Democratic Party. It would be easier to get more Democrats on board to talk about ways that the U.S. could play a positive role in bringing about peace in Israel um, uh, than to you know throw around names like a, a apartheid state. But but um, I think I think foreign policy. Um, you know, the most I think I don't think it's a big division. I think in foreign policy, most of the Democrats are not only going to be basically pro-Israel, but they're basically going to be, um, you know, pro-democracy and be willing to, um, you know, use the military might to sustain democracy. And I, I don't think there's been a lot of dissension within the Democrats on, on things like involvement in the um, Ukraine war to the extent we've been involved. Now, that, you know, there's a tiny bit of dissension, but, um, you know, I think it's really like you're talking about 95% versus 5%. And that's, that's you know, inevitable, I think. Um, I think on domestic policy, there's, there's probably more um, 
you know, wedge issues where the Dems are a, a bit divided, you know, particularly with um, respect to policing type views, you know, policing the cities and, and the connection to the Black Lives Matter concerns. I think there's a real divide uh, there about what, what's, a more what's even the right divide. position to take. Yeah. A more even divide. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And uh, um, yeah. And so, you know, but I, I do think as long as Trump's part of the picture, um, that's not going to weaken the Democratic coalition any. I think the Democratic coalition is extremely highly motivated to maintain unity to fight, um, you know, Trump and the the anti democracy movement in this country, and uh, um, and that you know it would only be, you know, if that threat would disappear, then I think some of these divisions um, within the party would become more problematic. No, I, I think this is the last electoral cycle where that's going to be true for uh, uh, for Democrats, but we'll, we'll get to that now. You know, I figured we would stay on the international policy side of things to start with, Ken. And and, and so as we move into our second story, the other big item this week, of course, was yet another uh, international relations story. And that was on Monday when Russia declared it was suspending a corridor uh, that allowed Ukraine to deliver grains to global markets. The agreement, which went into effect last year in July... Uh, or the Sea Grain Initiative, uh, was uh, ended by Russia, and they indicated that it was part, really just, quote, narrow self-interest, end quote, on the part of the West. Now, wheat prices, as you might imagine, have jumped as the supply is going to be significantly lower. It's hard to overemphasize how much foodstuff comes from Ukraine. Now, what is, I think... Worth thinking about because we had talked about this last week, and of course, where a lot of this grain actually ends up headed, for those of you who are interested in these kinds of things, is Turkey and China. That is actually where the bulk of of Ukrainian grain is sold. So much so, as a matter of fact, uh, Turkey's president thought it was going to continue, and one potential reading of the international room is is that uh, Erdogan's relationship to NATO, you know, kind of maybe in the view of Putin caving a little bit uh, to the expansion of NATO might have led to this. In other words, this might not be pointed so directly at the West, but it might actually be pointed uh, at Turkey primarily and maybe secondarily at China. It will at least affect them uh, in, in that view. There are some uh, uh, individuals who are arguing that perhaps this is a short term. Uh, Putin is headed uh, to an African conference, and there's one thought that maybe you know he's going to reinstate it there to kind of look, you know, like the the big guy. I'm not sure. I I I think the Turkey read might be the best read on what's happening here, but it certainly complicates what's happening internationally because now we have another sea, which is clearly going to be a combat zone, uh, and, and Russia has declared that. Well, what do you think about all of this, Ken? Yeah, it's it's so hard to predict where things are headed here because there's so many moving parts. Um, on the on on your analysis, I agree. I think um, b- both that it's it's it is directed at Turkey that that um, that, that that Putin thought that uh, he you know still had uh, um, Erdogan in his pocket, and in some ways he largely does. But on super public things like the the, the NATO vote about whether to uh, admit Sweden. Um, the pressure on Erdogan from the opposite direction was just overwhelming. And uh, um, 
And so I think I think he is trying to retaliate against Turkey for that. Similarly, as you mentioned, I hadn't thought about it until you said it, but um, with China, we talked last week about how um, we did the the friendship between you know Russia and China is maybe souring a little bit, and this might be a little shot across China's bow as well. Um, I think also it it. Um, I think it's you know to the extent that NATO is now um, growing and becoming more involved in the region, it, it could be just militarily a way that um, uh, Putin's throwing down a gauntlet, and and he's sort of saying, look, you know, I, I you know you you might end up having to um, either you know respect my ability to 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 embargo Ukrainian uh, wheat, or you might have all of NATO having to come into a, a military engagement with uh, you know with, with with Russian ships at sea, and then and then that threat threatens a world war, and I th- I think he's probably betting that um, you know he'll win that standoff that 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 Western ships are not going to go ahead and and start what could be World War Three by firing on these um, uh, Russian ships, so uh, particularly to help uh, get wheat to China. And so, um, I, I, yeah, I think, I, you know, I, I guess I, I still think there won't be a military engagement at sea. Um, I think the, the NATO ships and the NATO political leadership will be too cautious for, to allow that to happen. Um, and I think that um, we may just see uh, Western countries, including the United States, um, propping up uh, wheat shipments to Turkey and uh, propping up uh, financial aid to Ukraine to substitute for the money they would have made selling um, wheat to Turkey. And, uh, you know, as far as China, they might be on their own to figure out what to do about this. I don't think the U.S. is going to help and the NATO is going to help them that much. Um, no, but, no, uh, I, I don't yeah, see there being yeah, any yeah, assistance. Yeah. Turkey, yes. Uh, yeah. China, uh, right. no, especially right now. <laughs> right, right. We, we have some of the yeah, lowest yeah. Chinese relationships that we have had in I think our lifetime. Yeah, it's my lifetime. So, um, <laughs> yeah, but I, I just I still think as much as this is a crisis and it's it's a severe you know humanitarian and food crisis and a political crisis, um, it doesn't justify really escalating it up to a military engagement that could start World War Three from from the Western perspective, and I, I think that won't happen. Yeah, I mean, I think really you're absolutely right on the front of you know, there's not going to be an engagement in the sea, but it does it does raise the point of uh, that Ukraine is going to definitely be more decimated than it would have been with this agreement in place. Um, you know, even if you prop them up monetarily in the short term, that doesn't change the fact that you're going to have effectively the, a huge swath of the livelihood disappear. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's not an infrastructure that comes back quickly. Um, for those of you who don't know how the, the you know the kind of farming infrastructure works, and you know th- that is not a positive signal, and it and, and it, 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 it that will obviously have to be kind of tweaked in everybody's variables about what a post-war Ukraine is going to look like. I mean, I, I think that's one of the biggest takeaways we have to have here. Yeah, uh, they're going to need, um, you know, a, like a Marshall Plan um, to to get the get get their economy back up and running, um, and you know, but I think for for the next year or two, um, they're basically going to have to be floated on aid, and to to you know, I mean, to some extent, that's what's already been happening. So it's more of a change in magnitude than in than in uh, kind. I mean, there, there's already been a lot of foreign aid flowing there, and that's you know, that's how people are surviving there. Um, and hopefully the conflict will end and things can get moving back in a better direction. Yeah. And again, 
I have been hesitant at any point to say when I think it might end. I know when it first you know, broke out that uh, Ken and Jay both thought it was going to be over much more rapidly. Um, and I, yeah, I, I still am hesitant <laughs> to try to make a. I, I just don't. I, I don't have the variables necessary to make that prediction. Well, I think before we uh, return back to uh, domestic politics, Ken, we're going to pause for just a minute, and then we're going to take up Illinois Supreme Court potentially ending cash bail. So, Ken, on Tuesday, the Illinois Supreme Court upheld a law which eliminated cash bail. The bill, the Pretrial Fairness Act, changes how judges determine if someone is released from jail. Now, it ends having bail as part of that process, and that's a big deal because it was a very contentious portion of local Illinois uh, elections last cycle. Other states like New York, New Jersey, and New Mexico have lowered them, but no other state to this point has completely eliminated them. Now, what brought this all the way to the Illinois Supreme Court is this portion of their constitution, and it says this, quote, All persons shall be bailable by sufficient sureties except for the following offenses where the proof is evident or the presumption is great. And it goes on to list those uh, there. And the question is, well, like, if you have all persons shall be bailable, can you get rid of that bailability? And that is where both the lower courts and some of the dissenters on the Supreme Court said, well, look, if you want to do this, if you want to get rid of bail, you actually have to change the 1970 Constitution. That, By the way, if you're following along, it's Article 3, um, Section 9 uh, of their Constitution there. Now, the lower courts had ruled that you had that because the Constitution had bailability, it meant that there had to be something there. You couldn't just get rid of it. You, in fact, well, you could, but it was going to require uh, uh, more than a simple statutory shift. Now, the Supreme Court, again, the Illinois Supreme Court, disagreed. The dissent uh, argued that, quote, the legislature's abolishment of monetary bail is in direct violation of the plain language of our Constitution's Bill of Rights and, more specifically, the vested rights of crime victims. Now, the three reasons for the disagreement is, one, well, the language about bailability doesn't mean that it has to be monetary. Two, it assumed that ensuring bailability is the same thing as requiring money. And three, it, they suggested it misunderstood the history of the Illinois Constitution, which in this case heads up. They've had a number of different versions, the most recent, again, being the 1970 version they were talking about. So we've got the legal question going on there, Ken. But behind that legal question, of course, is also the politics question, the policy question. And that is, what is the effect and is having bail a good thing? So again, for those of you listening, remember bail before, when you're being charged with a crime under certain circumstances, depending on if you're going to be a flight risk, there's, and state to state it varies, uh, you can be required to put up money in order to not spend your time during trial in jail and rather be uh, uh, you know, out at home. A lot of organizations, including, well, your bar association, Ken, have argued that cash bail is problematic. Now, on the other side, there have been a lot of pushback. And again, this, this is one that's not exactly completely partisan in that sense. Um, 
you know, taking a look at this, you're going to see that a majority of Illinois county prosecutors and sheriffs, and again, this is Illinois, I mean, we're talking about a lot of Democrats here, uh, were against it uh, and spoke out against it. As a matter of fact, uh, one prominent sheriff argued, quote, today's ruling is a slap in the face to those who enforce our laws and the people those laws are supposed to protect, end quote. So, Ah, I, I, I've been thinking about this carefully, you know, both on the, in the legal terms, but also in the policy terms. I know you're more comfortable in the legal side of things, Ken. So why don't we start there and you talk about this? You know, the fact is bailability there. Does that mean that it needs to be cash bail or not? Do you agree with the Illinois Supreme Court? And then we can move and talk more about policy, which is where, where Illinois is trying to be on the forefront of a shift uh, uh, policy and politically speaking. Sure. So the legal question, you know, in a limited way, it's only a legal, it's only an Illinois legal question. Um, you know, what's the correct interpretation of the Illinois Constitution? But I do think it's it's pretty applicable in most American states because the the language in the Illinois Constitution is fairly typical um, of what you'd see in in many other state constitutions and and in the U.S. Constitution for that matter. So you know, the, the U.S. Constitution has similar language too. So the idea is that um, substantial Essentially, all these constitutions, um, including the Illinois Constitution, have as a right of criminal defendants that criminal defendants have a right um, to be released pre-trial if they haven't been tried and, and found guilty yet. They usually call that uh, bail. Um, when, when, so you get out on bail if you haven't had a trial yet. Um, and, um, in, and we usually think that that relates to money, although the idea of using money to set bail didn't actually start until the late 19th century. And this this language in all in many of the constitutions is older than that. So I thought it's monetary sources was, as a matter of fact, uh, 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 Britain uh, prior to the revolutionary period was was the beginning of cash bail, was it not? Well, the Illinois Supreme Court opinion, um, you know, says that it didn't start in Illinois until the 1870s. Oh, you're talking. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm not, for bail. You would yeah, kind of yeah. like expand the bail. I was yeah. like, wait a second. It has a longer I'm history saying, yeah. than the 19th. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, but I actually think that that's typical. I think the um, the Illinois practice and the, their court describes it as typical that um, that cash was not a common um, uh, method of bail. Um, in in the early in early American practice, and that uh, cash bail became you know routinized later than than when these bail provisions were put into these constitutions. So, and they they really mainly talk about the Illinois one, but I think they're they're talking about that as being re- representative as well. And I, I think it is representative. And and again, the the other part that I probably want to emphasize more here is that the the right to be bailed out before trial. Is is a right of criminal defendants. It's one of their rights, like like the right to have a lawyer, like the right to have a public trial, like the right to have a jury trial. So it's really not, um, you know, the prosecutor's right. It's it's the defendant's right. The defendant um, has a right uh, to be released before trial, but that's always been qualified um, on certain kinds of exigencies. So the two main exigencies that could deny a, a, an arrestee the right to, to be released would be either that they are uh, um, releasing them would be dangerous to the community um, or that they would be a flight risk. And if you release them, there'd be a, a, a reasonable or probable risk that they wouldn't show up for the trial. Um, and so risk of flight or danger to the community um, have, have typically been grounds for not releasing uh, people pre-trial. 
Now, um, you know, the, the so the the um, the the lower courts in Illinois, you know, I think for reasons that were entirely ideological and really had almost nothing to do with law, um, the, the lower courts just wouldn't accept the idea that the legislature could eliminate cash bail. And instead of looking at this as a policy question where the legislature can can balance the costs and the benefits of a cash bail system, um, which is what it should be, um, they, they, they sort of, you know, I think um, took some leaps of logic and said, well, since the Constitution mentions a right to bail, and since the right to bail in modern practice generally involves cash bail, and since the bail system has elements of protecting the community as well as elements of um, protecting the liberty of the defendant, um, the, 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 the community's interests um, are sort of paramount here and the legislature can't uh, relax the cash bail requirement. Um, I, I think that's both, you know, it, it's just not at all consistent with the idea that bail is a right of a defendant or, or with the idea that a, a defendant is actually presumed innocent um, until, the, until, the, until they're found guilty. And all of this happens at a time when they're still presumed innocent. Um, so I, I don't see a lot of basis for any judge to to say the legislature can't eliminate bail, it's it's it, 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 maybe an even broader way to put this is a state legislature's power has is, has often been defined as what we call the police power. State legislatures have the power to protect the public safety, and that means the power to set policies um, that are optimal for protecting the public safety. And that's kind of a core power of a state legislature. And I think that would mean a state legislature could impose cash bail. Or they could eliminate cash bail. Like the the power to impose it, it had to be imposed to begin with by the legislature. There wasn't any power to impose it um, until the, until the legislature gave that power. So the the legislature should be able to take away that power. And I think that's. I just think that's. There's not really a serious counter argument. And you know, I I see this as you know kind of like I guess just you know right right wing drum banging that there's been a couple of judges out there who want to scream look you know we're you know you're going to all be uh, murdered by criminals unless you vote for republican judges and I, that's kind of how i read those arguments you know now the lower court the district court that was a democratic judge was it not I didn't think so. But you, you might. You, it wasn't now, at the Supreme judge. Court level. You're absolutely right. It was right along partisan lines. I don't know about yeah. the uh, uh, you know their appellate court, uh, but I I thought that the district court judge who issued the original ruling was a Democrat. I'll defer to you on that. I don't know. Um, I just I did notice a straight partisan split on the um, Illinois Supreme Court. Yeah, and, that, and that's absolutely and, true. You know, and that's absolutely true. Yeah. And and we've had a we've actually had a similar thing here in um, Ohio. Uh, in uh, Ohio, um, there was a um, uh, an effort not to eliminate cash bail, but to cap uh, how much could be charged uh, for cash bail. And they were similarly, um, you know, the, our state attorney general Yost, who's a Republican, was demagoguing on that. Um, and I think there's there's a lot of um, I think there's a lot of uh, politics. Um, you know, where Republicans want to position themselves as tougher on street crime. And so, you know, you know, they'll make these these kind of very strained constitutional arguments about why the legislatures can't um, uh, uh, reform the bail system. But uh, I, I, I think it would be a pretty unusual state constitution. And I haven't seen one. I'm not saying there aren't any, but I think it would be an unusual one that would actually make bail um, a right of the prosecutors rather than a right of the defendant. And it's typically seen that the right to, to be released pretrial, um, which is enshrined in most constitutions, 
um, is is a right of the defendant, and therefore that that defendant's right it could never be unconstitutional for the legislature to enhance that right of the defendant um, and and make it even easier to get out. Um, do you want to move to the policy question? Yeah, or do let's, you let's just, move to the policy because you know one of the one of the things that I think makes this one difficult for me is I oftentimes see the debate over bail as being the second order issue that I'd want to take on. I mean, the reason that the question of bail is so important is because I think we've overcriminalized uh, uh, too many activities. And as a result, there, there's just too many people who make it through <laughs> the court system as it is yeah, in that defendant way. Um, you know, so, so for somebody like me, I would like to see much bigger decriminalization of non-harmful activities like drug use and things like that. And and so for me, sometimes I often say, think to myself, well, like, OK, we're having all of these issues with overcriminalization, which leads to weirdness with these institutions. Now, the institutions themselves might be problematic, and I'll get to that in a second. And I think there are some pop- possible problematic uh, natures to cash bail. But I, again, I see that as being second order to the problem of an overcriminalized uh, legal system in most states. What do you think about that uh, particular take, Ken? Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I think uh, so. What you're pointing out, the way I would relate that to the bail debate is you're pointing out that there's a great many um, offenses that people could get charged with that even if the charges are true and and they're guilty of those offenses, um, those are not offenses that would imply that they're a, a danger to their communities. Um, exactly. Even if they were out. That there, that the, yeah. There's, there's a lot of white collar crimes. There's a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, may, 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 maybe, um, you know, nonviolent um, uh, blue collar crimes. Uh, there's, there's all, there's all kinds of uh, offenses that have been defined. Yeah, and, and I think that that is a, a good argument for um, eliminating cash bail because the, the cash bail um, elimination, as it happened in Illinois and as it's been suggested elsewhere. It doesn't mean that everybody gets out. It just means that the judge has to uh, decide, um, would this person be a danger to their community if they were released? Would this person be a flight risk if they were released? And if the answer is yes, they would be a danger. Yes, they would be a flight risk. Um, the judge doesn't have to release them. He can just keep them locked up. Um, but if the answer is no, they wouldn't be a flight risk and they wouldn't be a, a danger, um, then you know they, they can be released until trial time. And by the way, the release could be subject to other kinds of conditions. So there could be ankle bracelet um, monitoring and things like that to monitor their locations. Um, there could be requirements that they check in. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the, 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 the elimination of cash bail does not... Um, uh, eliminate other safeguards to actually in- ensure, particularly on the flight risk side, if you put a um, ankle bracelet on somebody and monitor their whereabouts, um, then uh, you know that can that can tend to reduce their ability to be a flight risk. They can even have home confinement conditions in some cases um, where they're actually told, you know, you have to stay home and you have to wear this ankle bracelet. And if the if the if you leave the house or if the ankle bracelet comes off. You know, then you're, you're gonna people are gonna come arrest you, and you won't be you won't be released out again. So, you know, with all those kind of safeguards, there's there's many crimes. Um, you know, we talked a couple months ago about the the spate of um, public corruption prosecutions of elected officials, um, and you know, a lot of these elected officials, they're not um, going to be a flight risk or a danger to their community. 
um, if they um, are allowed out while they're waiting trial. And so um, so I think generally if that those should be the big questions. Anyhow, if someone actually is a danger to the community, I don't really know why they should be bailable. Right. You know, if you say, well, you know, this the serial killer they just picked up in New York who's murdered like these three or four women or is yeah. accused of that. Um, I don't know why you would want to set bail and, and let someone like that back out. I think someone like that, you might as well just say he's got to be he's got to be detained until trial. He's too dangerous to let out. But um, but I, I don't really see what the purpose would be of saying, well, if someone like that can lay down a couple million dollars, he can walk out. Someone, you know, the Jeffrey Jeffrey Epstein can walk out because he can lay down a couple million dollars. Someone who did the same things, you know, can't. So I don't I don't know what the benefit of that would be. And also um, another kind of modern uh, uh, problem that um, you have to think about if you have a cash bail system is these days, it's not just that you'd have a disparate treatment between rich and poor. You'd also have an additional disparate uh, uh, treatment between uh, people with um, uh, political constituencies and people who don't have that um, because of the possibility of crowdfunding. Right. So you look at someone like Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, arrested for homicide, and the bail is set at two million dollars. And I guess the judge had decided, um, well, if he if he could post two million dollars bail, He's not a danger to the community, but if he can't post $2 million bail, he is a danger to the community. And I, I don't know really wh where you get that from, like why that would make the well, difference. I, I think, but then I think the way I mean, to give, to give yeah. the other side of a point, I, I, think, I think the idea is to say there might be a class of individuals who would not do it for good. I mean, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't behave themselves for altruistic reasons or for the, but they might do it if there is, in fact, skin in the game, right? Like, in other words, well, I don't want to lose my yeah. X amount of money, ergo, I'm going to behave in a way that I wouldn't if I didn't have anything up, you know, in, in anything at stake. Uh, and I bring that up as the, as the point, Ken, because one of the other elements uh, of cash bail in the United States, at least, is, right, we also allow it to be uh, a business in the United States, right? So <laughs> you can have yeah. bail bonds, uh, which kind of complicate that. But I, I think that is at least the response is yeah. going to be to say, well, look, if you're Rittenhouse, okay, maybe I, you know, maybe I would play around with my AR, yeah. but there's a $2 million yeah. on me. So, but continue. I, I just wanted to kind of set well, that that yeah, way. So, so, great. Yeah, no, because the reason I brought up Rittenhouse, of course, is because it's the opposite in his case, right? So right. here's a guy who has no skin in the game, right? So he 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 gets on social media, and he says, "Look, uh, you know, I'm I'm a uh, I'm a freedom fighter for the white race. I'm a patriot. Whatever they're railroading me because I'm white. Um, you know, people should give me money to pay this two million dollars bail. And the money comes in from all kinds of people he doesn't know, you know, in twenty five and fifty dollar increments. And because of his ability to appeal to that constituency. Um, he walks right out. He doesn't put any of his own money in there at all. And quite to the contrary, um, eventually at the end of his trial, he was acquitted. And so the bail gets returned. And in his case, it just goes right in his pocket. So the, the, the net cash bail for Kyle Rittenhouse, the effect of it is he had no skin in the game to walk out of jail. And he gets profited by the $2 million that all kinds of strangers put in there for them, for him. And I think that's might be more like what the future of cash bail looks like. Like that, that kind of thing was pretty still, still pretty new when Kyle Rittenhouse did it. But I think that's what the future of cash bail would look like. You'd see a lot of crowdsourcing. You'd see a lot of people accused of particular crimes kind of getting out there and saying, well, you know, this is 
is a witch hunt. Uh, I'm only accused of this kind of crime because the powers that be, you know, hate hate my group, and you're in my group, so you should give me some money. And uh, and and then you know that that skin in the game thing disappears, and the um, the only criteria becomes who's able to harness social media to do that kind of crowdsourcing, and who's not. And and then the, this really perverse incentive to um, you know have massive profiteering from having been arrested and bailed out, which is exactly what Kyle Rittenhouse enjoyed. No, and I think that's kind of an excellent point there. Okay, well, I think we need to move forward. Uh, and, I, and I think what we'll do next, Ken, uh, to make sure our show goes on the right path here, uh, let's take a look and talk a little bit about what's happening in Georgia next. So just a little over a month ago, the two of us actually had the opportunity to talk about Allen v. Michigan. That was back on June 3rd of this year. That case, case authored by Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, and joined in part by Alito uh, and in whole by almost all the liberal justices, held that, that was a, there was a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, specifically that there are times when drawing voting districts must consider race, and Georgia had not done that. Now, as we talked about, uh, I believe even last week, right, those uh, districts, though, because they were being challenged, were actually used in 2022. But now they were having to be redrawn in, po- in, in the uh, wake of the ruling in June. Now, as a reminder, National House districts are drawn by state legislatures. So the Alabama state legislature had to head back to the drawing board. Well, or did it? Uh, in, uh, in, in this case, right, so uh, the precedent, uh, Roberts and Alito, again, I argue that they're kind of precedent skies. Uh, they held this up and said, look, the, the essence of a Section 2 claim is, is that there are certain electoral laws and practices or structural interactions with social historical conditions that cause inequality and opportunities enjoyed by black and white voters, end quote. As a result of all that, the court comes down to this and it says, look, you're going to have to have a second black district or, in the words of the court, quote, something quite close to it, quote. Now, the Alabama legislature has been reading that second part generously. Uh, The Alabama House has currently in its uh, new district a second 42 percent black district, but the Senate has one that is a second district that's only 38 percent black. Now, Ken, that has then led to obviously a lot of the individuals who were going through the original process saying, look, you're not changing this at all. But likewise, you have Republicans a little worried about what it might mean for them, including, for example, McCarthy, uh, who has been saying, I'm, you know, I'm following this really closely. So, you know, I think oftentimes, you know, when you're a listener, you might think, OK, well, the Supreme Court rules and that's kind of all there is to it. Um, but not always, right? Sometimes uh, uh, actors push back, and this seems to be one of those, either a pushback or a, an attempt to have such a broad reading as to include in what you want uh, 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 in it. So what do you think about the House's 42% black second district uh, and then the far less uh, likely, I think, to pass muster Senate's 38% black district? You know, I, I haven't studied all the facts that the plaintiffs are alleging uh, enough to, you know, figure out exactly, you know, what, what the how strong the proof will be that these were racially gerrymandered. I I do know that um, in um, Georgia, uh, before the redistricting, the Republican maps gave the Republicans a eight six majority in their House delegation, 
um, after the redistricting, the Republicans were able to increase that majority by one from eight six to nine five, without um, actually increasing the percentage of votes that they got from voters in Georgia. Um, so certainly gerrymandering played a role. Now whether whether they'll be able to prove that that was racial gerrymandering, which the court um, Supreme Court recently reaffirmed, does still violate the Voting Rights Act, um, or whether the Republicans will be able to um, make an argument that it it could have been political gerrymandering that wasn't based on race, um, which which the um, Supreme Court has said is, is um, not justiciable. In other words, not that it's permissible, but that courts can't do anything about it. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, you know, we'll have to see how the facts unfold. I, I like that the judge um, scheduled the trial for September. Um, you know, that's pretty soon. You know, I think it, that's about as soon as would be possible. And that does imply that he's, um, you know, taking the plaintiff's claims pretty seriously, because um, this judge certainly could have, uh, you know, slowballed this a little bit more than that. And and that would have made it uh, um, more or less impossible to get it done by the 24 election. So uh, to me, that's an optimistic sign. But a lot of these things are going to come down to, um, you know, what kinds of facts can be proved out about the deliberations that went into how they drew these maps. Yeah, it's, it's going to be curious. I mean, because again, having had just had uh, Alan, uh, Alan V. Milligan, you know, does this meet what the court has said had to happen? You know, the Supreme Court has said had to happen. And, and, and I think that's going to be the crux. Yeah, and that would mean that the, the Supreme Court said that the states cannot um, make changes that uh, reduce the um, uh, status quo ability of minority voters to be able to have their vote counted equally um, with um, uh, um, uh, white voters. Um, and so if it can be proved that that's what was done, that they were that these changes were designed to reduce the impact of minority votes, then the plaintiffs are going to win the case. But the thing that makes that difficult is, um, it can easily be proved. In fact, I don't think I don't think there's any counter argument that the changes um, uh, uh, favored Republicans and and at the expense of Democrats. But the um, the the uh, you know the Georgia legislature is going to be able to make the argument. Well, yeah, but that wasn't um, based on race. That was just based on party affiliation. And so you know to 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 show that that was based on race. I think is going to require some evidence, and that's really that's where it's really going to come down to what what can be brought into court. Well, I think we've had enough time to have kind of maybe a, a footnote of a, a final story here, Ken, and that's the RFK Jr. hearing. And I think maybe maybe just RFK a little bit broader himself. He's a weird guy. I mean, he's not going to win, um, but he actually is doing better than you might imagine in, in in a primary right now. I was taking a look at the most recent numbers. He's consistently holding double-digit approval, uh, most recently with uh, Harvard uh, Caps Harris poll. He still has a really high positive when you take a look among Democrats, which is weird in my position, 21%. Um, again, especially when you're running against an incumbent president uh, like Biden. Uh, and then he finds himself in a strange place. So he's the, you know, he's the Democratic nominee, but he's coming in at the, uh, the behest this week of a Republican House committee, specifically on uh, uh, government censorship in that sense. And it comes in a week where he had made some really controversial uh, comments where he had said, quote, COVID-19 is targeted to attack Caucasian and black people. The people who are most immune are Jews and Chinese, end quote. Now, 
Kennedy said, look, under oath, I'm not, I, you know, I, I'm not a racist. I'm not anti-Semitic. Really, what I am is, is I'm just, you know, showing you what the, you know, the, the, the research has said. Now, there is evidence to suggest in recent research that there's differences among different times of people uh, for their susceptibility to COVID. But he was putting it into the context of it being kind of engineered as a, quote unquote, ethnic bioweapon, which is vastly different than just saying, look, there's, there's different rates of infection among uh, different kinds of people. Uh, and he ends up having uh, this past week, you know, during the hearing, a, a kind of a complicated set of interactions with Democrats. And, you know, I had we had mentioned this earlier in terms of Israel, uh, Ken, but I think a lot when, when I see the RFK conversations, when I see this going down, it's almost always kind of like RFK, the Republican. And I think. OK, I get that you put some of his views in, in, in the Republican side, but he's running. I mean, he could have opted to run in the uh, in the Republican primary. Maybe he'd have some support there. I don't know how to even to begin to answer that question, but he's running as a Democrat. He's having this controversial hearing. He has a confrontation with Democrats. What do you make of RFK and kind of his weird location place here in, in the American consciousness uh, during this electoral cycle? Well, he's a Republican, um, and his his running in the Democratic primary is a Republican operation to make mischief, um, and he can benefit the Republicans a lot more by running in a Democratic primary than he possibly could by running in a Republican primary. In fact, he would do the Republicans no benefit at all if he was running in a Republican primary. He would just cause some trouble for them. Um, uh, when, so, in what way is he a Republican? Um, I, 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 I mean, other than I, mean, I know that he has some positions that are sympathetic that way. He's not, you know, he's not a Republican and never has been a Republican. And his historical background is, as a matter of fact, kind of anti-corporatism Democratness. Well, he, um, of course, his name is Robert Kennedy. And so um, that's a good name to have for Democrats, right? That, you know, his, his, well, that's true his father <laughs> was one. Yeah. His father was one of the most beloved uh, Democrats. Uh, his uncle, John F. Kennedy, was, um, you know, the, 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 a very beloved Democratic president that most um, uh, subsequent Democratic nominees have tried to uh, associate themselves with or affiliate with themselves with. Biden certainly does that. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the Kennedy name, you know, is it carries a lot of weight um, among Democrats. Um, and I think, you know, he in the past has been affiliated with the Democrats because that's just his family legacy. Um, his views departed from the Democrats' views a long time ago, and he is on a straight, um, you know, disruption operation now to disrupt the Democrats. There's, he's not trying to appeal to Democrats. He's trying to undermine Democrats by running as a Democrat, sowing dissension, and um, uh, espousing openly uh, um, Trumpist views on everything, or even sometimes beyond Trump on his Trumpist views. And that's, of course, why all the Republicans in the House. Um, gave him, you know, both the invitation and the extremely warm welcome and, and tried to prop him up because they all understand that he's a Republican. No, no, nobody in Congress thinks he's a Democrat. Nobody running in the Democratic primaries thinks he's a Democrat. He's just mislabeled himself because he has the benefit of that because he comes from one of the Democratic dynastic families and uh, has been a registered Democrat in the past, that it allows him to be kind of like a, a a disinformation operation behind uh, enemy lines under false flag. I mean, he's basically a false flag 
Uh, Democrat, he's running as, a, as under I, the false flag. Of being I think a that is a view of, of Democrats who don't recognize some of the, the deeper divisions within themselves. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. And I mean, and if, and if I was a Democrat, I would be if that was true, I'd be happy about that. Um, but I, I don't think that's the case. I, so just for example, his anti-vaccine positions, which I deeply disagree with, uh, you know, the the origin of weirdly, the origin of anti-vax uh, vaccination does not initially uh, emerge among conservatives. It emerges among the, the kind of what you would call the crunchy left. <laughs> uh, and, and he was a part of that uh, uh, place and space and time. I think one of the things you have going on here is, is I think he does get dismissed as being a Republican. And I get that at a surface level, but I don't think that's actually the case. And I think what it indicates is, is that there is a subset of Democrats and liberals who do not fit uh, the uh, kind of the mainstream go. And as somebody who had been in the Republican Party... Uh, who who had similar thoughts uh, about earlier candidates, I would caution that you might make a similar mistake to discount RFK uh, as, as having support in in uh, in the Democrats. Because, again, the, some of these positions that he's had long time, they aren't recent flops for him, but actually kind of organic growths. That did emerge from Democrats. I mean, again, we think of anti again, I think anti vaccination is a, is a wonderful example of this. We think of that as being, you know, in the post covid world, almost a defining, you know, uh, progressive, excuse me, um, Trump feature. But really, again, the origin of that California, <laughs> Oregon and leftists. Yeah, but that it, it, he. You're right that that's the origin, and that's of that. where he came from. I mean, that but he, he not... was he was doing that way back then when nobody you know paid any attention. I mean, Republicans are happy to glom onto him now, uh, but you know, it's not as if he wasn't that, that way and then he what... shifted now. He was always an anti-vaxer, right? Yes, the, yes. And, and I'm sure that yeah, and I'm and I'm sure there's some Democrats today who are also anti-vaxers. But the point is, I, I would compare this to like the old Dixie, Dixiecrats who all became Republicans, right? So you used to have like these Southern segregationist Democrats, and then after the um, uh, after LBJ passed the Civil Rights of Act. 64, the, the Southern segregationist Democrats, some of them hung on as Democrats for a while longer in name, but they became, you know, kind of positioning themselves um, against the dominant branch of their party. And then over time, they mostly, you know, just switched and came out as Republicans. And I think that's what you're seeing now. He's in that phase where, you know, he had some views, which, you know, by now, those those are Republican views, not Democratic views. And he's in that phase where in his mind, he's already switched to being a Republican. And because the anti-vax thing, which you're right, it began in the left, but it doesn't play well in the in the Democrats now. It does play well in the Republicans now. And he's realizing that a lot of his views play well with Republicans now. And again, there's no Democrat, there's no bona fide Democrats that, you know, Jim Jordan is kind of embracing in a bear hug the way he did at this hearing the other day. They all know that he's a Republican now, but it just benefits everybody's interest for him, you know, since he switched his views to being a Republican, but he happens to be branded with a famous Democratic name. Um, you know, he he can do more good for himself and more good for the Republicans by just pretending that he's still a, a Democrat. But that'll end. I mean, he'll, it'll, it'll end by, by next year. You know, I don't know if he'll 
actually join the Republicans next year. He may run as a third party candidate next year when he doesn't get the Democratic nomination next year. But but him running as a third party candidate will be advancing a Republican strategy. And it'll be done, you know, all if that happens, all of his funding and all of his support is going to come from Republicans because they just wanted to split the vote on Biden. Well, I hear you. I, 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 my last minor warning is to say, beware of the crazy who runs in your party. Now, <laughs> well, I know. And actually, what I was going to say is, when you said I shouldn't dismiss him, I don't dismiss him. I condemn him. You know, I, I okay, think he fair, could have fair. a very serious. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he could have a serious hand grenade, like lobbing a hand grenade into this election if he does run as a third party. That's the single most significant threat right now to Biden getting reelected. I think. You know, more more than I, I don't think there's any. Well, can I ask you? Uh, one, I don't Republican. want you to get too far. I have a quick question on that because if he really is just a Republican and he runs as a third party, wouldn't that if if your first analysis is right, then wouldn't we suspect that that yeah. would hurt Republicans, not Democrats? And if he hurts the Democrats, wouldn't that lead support to my thesis? No, that's not what would happen because um, if he if he brands himself as a, a Demo Democrat who had to run on a third party, um, what I'm saying is he's fooling some people, right? He's not fooling anyone in Washington. Everybody in Congress knows that he's a Republican. So he's pulling the eyes Everybody over some Democratic voters, effectively. Voters, yeah, and particularly like um, you know there is that kind of you know still part of the Democratic coalition. You have these people who are um, you know white working class over fifty. You know maybe at one point in their life they were union labor, but now they're maybe underemployed and not really union labor anymore. You know there's that midwestern demographic that that kind of did help Trump win in 2016 in states like Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania, um, who are Democrats, you know, in part because they always were Democrats, but they're very open to the um, Trump messaging. And I think if he can peel off that demographic, you know, it was only like 70,000 voters in that demographic who got peeled off in, in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania in 16 that flipped the outcome of the election. And so I think he poses a tremendous danger to do that. But I think, you know, that's a demographic of people that would find it hard to pull a lever for someone with an R next to their name, although they did it for Trump. But they find it a lot easier to pull a lever for someone with an independent label next to their name um, because they still, you know, are, you know, had identified in the past with being lifelong Democrats. And I think I think that's the electoral hand grenade that he poses. He's not going to get a ton of votes, but if he could get two percent of the vote, he could flip a, a presidential election that way, especially in some close states. Well, I'm going to have to stop us there because we have gone long, Ken, and say that's it for this week. But it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it has been a lot of fun. Well, so if you aren't already a supporter of the politics, guys, I hope you'll consider becoming one because without you, this podcast, it just doesn't happen. Uh, and not only does it not happen, but that's what gives us the ability to have the tools that we use to do this. And, and so we need you to be a supporter. Now, I'm not just asking you to be a supporter, though. You're going to get cool stuff for being a supporter. And I love it, right? You get ad-free versions of the show. You get our supporter-exclusive midweek show. As a matter of fact, Ken and I are going to be recording that in just a few minutes. We're going to be continuing our uh, uh, view through the Constitution. We're into Article 4. We're going to be dealing with uh, uh, the rest of Article 4 today, and I'm really excited about that, and I want you to be able to listen to it ad-free, and you do that by becoming a supporter. You get other cool things, too, like access to our Discord channel, where we have conversations that kind of break away, not just from the stories that we do here, but deeper dives into them, and sometimes 
pretty deep arguments about philosophy, and we have all different kinds of channels, and I would love to see you as part of that. Now, how do you become a part of that? Well, the easiest way to become a member of the Politics Guys is to head to patreon.com slash politicsguys and take a look at the level of support. Different levels of support get you different kinds of things. So if you head to patreon.com slash politicsguys, choose the level of support that's right for you. And then join us on those midweek shows or join us uh, on Discord or just enjoy something out of a, uh, a coffee cup made by the Politics Guys. Now, there's other ways to support the show as well. We're also on Venmo where we're at Politics Guys. You can also support the uh, show through PayPal. To see all of that, all you got to do is scroll there down or just uh, look down at the, the links in the show notes. So just click on read more and all of our show notes will have access to the ways that you can support the show. If you like to do it old school, you can always head to politicsguys.com support and see all the different ways you can support the Politics Guys. But again, the easiest is to head to patreon.com politicsguys and choose your level of support so that you can listen to that Constitution show this week. Now, if you'd like to get our midweek show, but you're just not in the position to do that financially, we get that. As a matter of fact, I know there's a lot of you out there, you're working on dissertations, you're doing all kinds of things. We want you to hear that show as well. I oftentimes say, I get it. I've got three kids. I know how that is. If you just shoot an email to Mike at mikeatpoliticsguys.com, we'll get you set up and, and you'll actually get that on the regular as well. So please, again, just email Mike at Politics Guys if you're not in a position, but you want that exclusive midweek show. Now, whether you're a supporter or not, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe, rate, review us on whatever podcast app you use. Keep in mind, it's those ratings that put us up high enough so that new listeners can find us. So I know it seems terrible. The whole world is always asking you, hey, how was my support? Hey, how was our support? But it means everything. Just take two seconds, click the stars, and just write something like amazing, and then your day is done. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, or anything else you'd like to share, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. You can find all of this in the show notes. A special thanks, as always, to the executive producers of the Politics Guys, who are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode next week, and I hope you'll join us then.